And it is Jesus that makes this a glorious day. Rejoice! Christ is risen. Welcome to this morning's broadcast. We are so glad that you could join us. Today, Pastor Elliot's special Resurrection Lord's Day sermon titled, Christ's Resurrection and the Sign of Jonah. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 12, 38 to 40. And now, Pastor Robert Elliot. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ should have snuck up on no one. None of Jesus Christ's contemporaries could say that the bodily resurrection of Christ surprised them. At least they shouldn't be able to have said that. Because our Lord, while alive, was vocal about the fact that he would rise from the dead. One place where he predicted his own resurrection was in Matthew chapter 12. I want to begin reading at verse 38 of Matthew 12. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Let me just be blunt. If a person does not believe that Jesus Christ bodily rose from the dead, then that person is not a Christian. For both the cross and the empty tomb combine together to be the gospel. If you have one of these historical events without the other, you have only half the gospel. The whole gospel that is to be believed upon so that we might be declared righteous by a holy God is that Christ died for sins on the cross and he rose again from the dead after dying for sins. If you want to hold your place in Matthew, I'd like to take you to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is perhaps the most clear and salient definition of the gospel in all of the New Testament. I want to unpack it with you, beginning at verse 1 and reading through verse 6. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which you also are saved if... You hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. So watch it. The gospel is Christ died for sin. It was predicted by the Old Testament scriptures that he would. It was attested to the fact that they buried him. They were professional executioners. These Roman soldiers buried and saw to the death of so many criminals by crucifixion. They knew when a man was dead. Jesus Christ died for your sins. The Old Testament scriptures predicted that he would. And those at the cross let his body be taken down and be buried, proving he was actually dead. That's half the gospel. The other half of the gospel is he was raised from the dead. 
The Old Testament scriptures also predicted his resurrection. And how do we have proof that he was raised from the dead? Well, as burial proved that he actually died for sins, being seen of eyewitnesses alive after being pronounced dead is proof of the resurrection. And so you cannot be a Christian if you do not believe that Christ died for your sins as a historical fact and that Christ was raised bodily from the dead after dying for your sins. But when you do believe those two historical facts, you believe a whole gospel and you are saved. Are you saved this morning? Going back to Matthew 12, 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we wanna see a sign from you. Apparently, the Jewish religious leaders of that day commissioned a special delegation, a posse, to publicly challenge their enemy, Jesus of Nazareth, on this particular occasion. And in verse 38, it calls this delegation some of the scribes and some of the Pharisees. Let me tell you about these men. The Pharisees were the very most prominent people in Jewish society back then. They were the most respected of all religious leaders. They were the pace setters for personal piety and they talked a far better game than they walked. They were hypocrites. Jesus, whenever you see the anger, the righteous indignation of Jesus Christ, it's for the hypocrisy of these religious leaders. Remember, he called them whitewashed sepulchers. They were white-painted burial tombs. They looked good on the outside, but on the inside, their hearts were unrenovated. Their hearts were corrupt. Their hearts were smelly. They were all about appearances, but not about realities. And it was these men that were told to go confront the Prince of Glory, the sinless Savior of the world. And they went. They went as the religious police to try to catch Jesus in some error. But they didn't go alone, these Pharisees. If these Pharisees were the self-appointed religious police, then the men that went with them, the scribes, were the self-appointed Supreme Court of judges on religious matters in Israel. These scribes had to be at least 30 years old, and they had to have already devoted many, many years to studying the Old Testament scriptures, the first five books of our Old Testament, the Torah. Also, additionally, they had to prove themselves faithful students of the Hebrew traditions that are contained in the Talmud. And so a delegation of these Pharisees, these religious police, and a delegation of these scribes, these superior court judges on religion, came and spoke to our Lord. And they were sarcastic and demeaning when they called him teacher. Some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. They wanted something big. They wanted something sensational. They wanted something that you could put on the six o'clock news in our culture. They wanted proof that Jesus of Nazareth was who he claimed to be, the Christ, God, Messiah, Savior. Going back to Matthew 
12, 39, but he answered and said to them, an evil and an adulterous generation craves for a sign and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah, the prophet. Christ here emphatically said that only one more sign for all time will be given for all the remaining time of his earthly ministry. And Jesus made it very clear that this one last sign will be something which he called the sign of Jonah, the prophet. Verse 40, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. As an important aside to see, Jesus Christ believed in the veracity and the authority and the inspiration of the Old Testament. He accepted the fact without question that Jonah actually existed He accepted the actual Old Testament account that Jonah was literally swallowed up by a great fish and then vomited onto a beach in Assyria. My dad came to Christ and my mother did come to Christ as adults. My dad was part of an affluent congregation of a main liberal Christian denomination in Canada. He was an elder in this particular church. Through a chain of circumstances directed by a loving God, that included the death of a baby sister of mine two weeks old, my mother came to see Jesus Christ as her only sin remedy, apart from my dad seeing that initially. My mother trusted Jesus to be her savior, and then she went to prayer for my father's salvation. He said, that's fine for you, Mary. I don't need that kind of a salvation. I'm a pillar in the community and a good guy at church. Um, I'm happy for you, but no thanks. Maybe you're here this morning with that outlook about the risen Christ. Well, months later, my dad had the Holy Spirit working in his life, convicting him of sin, his own, convicting him of righteousness, Jesus Christ's righteousness, and convicting him of judgment, that except my dad ran to Christ in faith, that he would be judged eternally for sin. And my dad transferred his trust to Christ for his salvation, and almost immediately he went to his senior pastor of his liberal Christian congregation, the man that he sat in the board meetings of the church with regularly, the senior pastor. And my dad went to Dr. Hunter and said, Dr. Hunter, I got saved yesterday. I'm a born-again Christian now. And Dr. Hunter said, oh, that's great, Don. And my dad said, are you saved, Dr. Hunter? He says, no, I'm not saved. But don't go anywhere, Don. We need people who are saved around here in this congregation. So my dad said, well, let me just ask you this, Dr. Hunter. I believe the Bible. Dr. Hunter said, I believe the Bible. My dad said, I believe that God created everything we see except sin in six literal days. Do you believe that, Dr. Hunter? Not literally, Don. Dr. Hunter, I believe the Bible. I believe that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish and spit up on a beach. Do you believe that, Dr. Hunter? Well, no, not literally, Don. I'll come back to this true story later in this message. Jesus Christ believed the Old Testament to be true and accurate history. So we should believe both the Old and the New Testament enough that it is enough that we attest to its testimony about the Lord Jesus Christ's resurrection that by believing in the Old and New Testaments, we believe that Christ was raised from the dead just based on what Scripture tells us. Verse 40 again. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This sign of Jonah, the last sign that would be given, involved Christ being only three days and three nights dead in a tomb before the Father raised him from the dead. 
And so Jesus was saying ahead of his death that his bodily resurrection from the dead would be the culminating sign to prove that he is God and Savior. And so if you're sharing Christ, and I hope you are, church family, if you're telling lost people who need a Savior, who need a salvation because they're flailing around in sin and bondage, as you're sharing Christ, please regularly, biblically, cite Christ's resurrection from the dead to lost people who are particularly stubborn in their unbelief and particularly demanding about some big 6 p.m. evening news footage film at 11 proof that Jesus is God. Cite the resurrection of Christ. Take them to the scriptures that report it, the eyewitnesses who saw it, the apostles who died heinous martyrs' deaths because of it and didn't recant their faith because he was alive and he had changed them. I told you I'd tell you the rest of that story. My father's with Dr. Hunter. He doesn't believe God created in six days, literally. He doesn't believe that Jonah was swallowed by the fish, literally. So my dad says, well, Dr. Hunter, I believe the Bible. I believe that Jesus fed 5,000 men plus women and children with a little boy sack lunch. Do you believe that? Oh, not literally, Don. So my dad said, Dr. Hunter, let's just get to the point. I believe that Jesus Christ was raised bodily from the dead after being crucified. Do you believe that? Not literally, Don. So my dad looked at his preacher and said, well, I have to find a church that believes all these things literally. Christ is risen. Proving that he is God, proving that he is the only savior God will provide, proving that he is Lord and master and king. Do you believe it? I believe it. Or do you need more proof? If you honestly, in your heart, say, I need more proof, Jesus in verse 39 says, you're part of an evil and an adulterous generation. I would not recommend that you go to your grave encamped with an evil and an adulterous generation. I would recommend that you would repent of unbelief. In childlike faith, take Christ as your Lord and Savior by faith and be born again. The way you would do that is you would acknowledge to God that you're absolutely helpless lost, blind, dead spiritually. You cannot do anything to save yourself, but that Jesus Christ died in your place, a grace offering, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, the lamb offering that culminates all previous animal lamb offerings, and that what you could not do, i.e. pay for your own sins, Jesus did fully, completely paying for your sins. And then I would encourage you to turn from anything that's keeping you from trusting Christ alone to be your Savior and turn in faith to this wonderful Jesus and say, I trust you, only you, to make me right with God, to make me new on the inside, to enliven my spirit that has been dead in sin, to make me a new creation in Christ. That's how you're saved. It's time for the Bible's answers to your questions. We urge you to get a pen or pencil and paper and take down the references used so that you can do your own study later on. We here at Echoes of Calvary are always eager to receive your letters of support and your questions, which we seek to answer right away, and also here on the show. You can send us your letters via email at eocradio at gmail.com. Once again, here's Pastor Robert Elliott. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung is uh, in a radio studio this morning. Good morning, uh, Dr. DeYoung. Good morning, sir. Pleased to have you with us you. here in Nassau. 
we've been uh, talking and chatting a little bit about Bible prophecy, and I know you have an extensive background in the study of God's Word in that particular area. The question I have for you, uh, Brother Jimmy, is that born-again Bible-believing Christians have some debate amongst themselves on the timing of the rapture of the church and on the timing of the second coming return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Some believers see that rapture as coming before the tribulation seven years, and others say, no, no, it's in the middle of that, or some say even at the end. Uh, Then with the second coming return of the Lord, same thing. Some believers study the word and say, no, that's going to be at the beginning of the millennial thousand-year kingdom of Christ on earth. And others say, no, it's going to be some other time. So does that make a difference to find the timing of these events? How does that make a difference? Well, it does indeed make a very important difference as you think about, and let's think about the coming of the Lord back to the earth, the second coming when he touches down there on the Mount of Olives in the city of Jerusalem and will, as the church, as his bride, be coming with him at that time. And that's after the seven-year period of time referred to as the tribulation. So then we would consider ourselves premillennialist. In other words, the millennium referring to the thousand-year period of time. And we would believe that Jesus Christ comes back prior to that thousand-year period of time. Over the centuries, there's been much debate as to when the return of Christ would take place. But I would suggest if you open up the book of Revelation and you look at it from a literal perspective. And when I study and teach Bible prophecy, I take the literal approach to understanding what God's word has to say. And the book of Revelation basically lays out the chronological unfolding of how everything is going to happen. For example, chapter 4 and verse 1 would be the rapture of the church. John heard, as it were, a trumpet talking with him, which say, come up hither. And in chapter 4, verse 1, John is on the earth. Chapter 4, verse 2, he's in the third heaven. So he departs the earth and goes to the heavenlies, which is exactly what happens at the rapture of the church. From chapter 4, verse 2, through chapter 19, verse 10, that would be 16 chapters of detailed information about the tribulation period. Jesus refers to that time as the tribulation, he gives the title to it in Matthew 24 and verse 29, where he says immediately after the tribulation, I'm going to come back to the earth. And that's a promise. He had postponed the kingdom, but he promised he was going to come and set up that kingdom when God, his father, gave him his dominion, his kingdom, which would be forever. So you have those 16 chapters in Revelation from chapter 4, verse 2 through chapter 9. 19 verse 10, which would be the tribulation period. Chapter 1911, Jesus mounts a white horse. Verse 14 says, those of us in the heavenlies, we were taken there at the rapture of the church. And during that seven-year period of time of terrible judgment upon the earth, we're having a celebration. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're celebrating our marriage to Jesus Christ. Now we become his bride, his wife forever and will rule and reign with him. He's the king, will be the queen, and will rule and reign with him. And so that's chapter 19, verses 11 and following. And then we notice when we go over to chapter 20, 
we have the introduction of a thousand-year period of time. In chapter 20, verses 1, 2, and 3, it talks about the Antichrist gone, the false prophet gone into the place called hell, which was prepared for Satan and his demons. Uh, Well, they're gone. But at the time when the return of Jesus Christ is taking place, then Satan, who was the one who energized the Antichrist, energized the false prophet, These are gone. They've gone into hell. Now Satan is not yet going to be cast into hell, but he's going to be bound in a bottomless pit. And the text tells us for a thousand year period of time. That's chapter 20, verses 1, 2, and 3. Chapter 20, verses 4, 5, and 6, it talks about Jesus Christ ruling and those of us who come to know him as Lord and Savior and are a part of that church, part of the bride of Christ, will rule with him for that thousand-year period of time. At the end of the thousand-year period of time, according to our study of the book of Revelation, it helps us to understand that then the great white throne judgment will take place, and that's when all people who have rejected Jesus Christ will be cast into the lake of fire along with Satan where they'll be forever. And then chapters 21 and 22 of the book of Revelation, now that's eternity future, new heavens, new earth, and new Jerusalem. Now, I went through that entire scenario to let you see how chronologically it unfolds. The rapture, the seven-year period of time, the return of Jesus Christ, that thousand-year kingdom, the great white throne judgment, and then into eternity future. Now, I've just given you the book of Revelation. I could go to many other passages of Scripture and confirm what I just had to tell you, but that lays out the fact that there's going to be a premillennial return of Jesus Christ. Now, let's go back to that pre-trib rapture. Uh, that you mentioned as well. Why is it not at midway point? In fact, there is a thought that it could happen three quarters of the way, the pre-wrath rapture. And then, of course, as you mentioned at the end, which seems so ridiculous, the post-trib rapture, which means if indeed what I told you about the return of Christ is taking place, we're going to go up and Get on a horse and come right back. <laughs> right. I mean, it doesn't seem logical for anybody to think that would be the way it's going to take place. But let me go back now and let's think about that pre-tribulational rapture. In other words, the rapture of the church, us being called up to meet him in the air, to be with him forevermore, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, has to happen before the tribulation period. And let me tell you why. Several reasons. First, in Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3, the word church is used 19 times. In chapter 4, verse 1, and after that, during those 16 chapters describing the tribulation period, the word church is not used. And so very much of an evidence that indeed the church is not in the tribulation period. When you go over to the letter that Jesus wrote to the people in Philadelphia, chapter 3 of Revelation and verse 
verse 10, it says, and I will keep you from. He does not say, I will take you out of. He said, I will keep you from that time of testing, of tribulation, that time uh, that is going to be on the earth for braining actually the earth and earth dwellers under submission. You see, at the end of the tribulation period, God the Father is going to give Jesus the Son the kingdom, and he's going to be king of kings and lord of lords over all of creation. But wait a minute. If he was to come back today and claim to be the king and say, I'm setting up my kingdom, boy, how many people would be willing to be submissive to him? Uh, he would be probably the laughing stock of the world. And so the reason for that tribulation period, and another very logical reason that we don't go into the tribulation period, is because that is a period of time when the earth dwellers and the earth, there's both physical judgment upon the individuals, the earth dwellers, and the earth itself, ecological judgment. You look at the trumpet judgments, for example. Uh, it talks about a third of the ocean turning to blood, the fish in the sea dying, all the shrubs, the trees, the grass burning up. You go over to the 16th chapter, it talks about all the ocean turning to blood. It also talks about, and when you look at two different passages, chapter 6 and chapter 9, it means that we must understand one half of the earth's population is going to be killed. I mean, that's a terrible time. You read those 16 chapters, you'll recognize that the Lord is testing and he is judging all those who have rejected him for the purpose of bringing them to him as Lord and Savior. And some will get saved during that period of time. A very difficult time for most, but there will be a number who will be saved. But those people will be people who were lost when he raptured the church out. Because remember, the church is not in that period of time. And that's what he said to the church at Philadelphia. He said, I will keep you from. Now, the Greek grammar and also the English grammar is not, I will take you out of, but I will keep you from that hour of testing, that hour of trouble, that hour of judgment. You go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And Paul there is explaining to the people he led to the Lord and started a church in Thessaloniki. That's chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, talking about the rapture and how it's going to happen. But then when you look at chapter 5, and he says, hey, the rapture hasn't happened. Don't worry, folks. Look, I taught you when I was there about the day of the Lord. And remember what I taught you. The rapture takes place before the day of the Lord. Then he says in chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians, you're not people in darkness. You're people of light. The rapture takes place. Then the day of the Lord unfolds. And the great definition for the day of the Lord is any time in history when God intercedes in the affairs of man personally on the earth. Earth, that's what he's doing during that terrible time of judgment, the tribulation period. So then he says again in chapter 5 and verse 9, I will keep you from that hour of testing, that terrible time of judgment. One last quick thought. Over in the book of Daniel, chapter 9 and verse 27, it talks about a seven-year period of time, the culmination of a 490-year period of time that the Lord said, it's called the 70 weeks of Daniel, but in essence, it's 77s, 490 years, as you study the text itself. 
And he says, during that period of time, it's going to be when I'm going to allow the Antichrist to show up. He is going to confirm a peace treaty, thinking then all of the Jewish people that the Messiah has come because now there's peace. They will lay down their weapons. The battles will take place. And there will be a temple on the Temple Mount that the Antichrist is going to desecrate. That's what happens in that seven years. May I tell you something? In Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27, the church was not there because in the previous 483 years, the church was not there either. And in order to have a consistent hermeneutic, in other words, how you approach your study, the scientific approach to interpreting scripture, you must understand that indeed in the first 483 years, the church was not there. They won't be in there in the seventh year as well. Those are some of the reasons why uh, we will go before the tribulation period and Jesus Christ will come before the millennial kingdom. Thank you, Dr. DeYoung. That's a splendid answer with such detail. So helpful, so edifying, and so encouraging. Uh, It's great to know our, our God is a God of order, a God of sovereignty, a God who is in control of a perfect plan with a perfect purpose. He's revealed to us the scriptures that are accurate, that are dependable, that are inspired, and they're understandable when the Spirit of God lives within the born again Christian. The same one who authored the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, can minister those scriptures to our understanding. I really appreciated your uh, comment on the literal interpretation of God's word. And I've always said that when the plain sense of scripture makes good sense, seek no other sense or you'll be left with nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great thought. (laughs) You've been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church, Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship service begins this morning at 11 a.m. and coming April 3rd at 8 a.m. in the sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We encourage you to join us at these times. Feel free to write us at eocradio at gmail.com or P.O. Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And remember, everyone needs a savior. <laughs>